Okay, what happens when believers persist in unrepentant sin? I already showed you 1 John 5, 16 says there is a sin that leads to death. We call it the sin unto death. That is not the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? You could only commit the unpardonable sin two times. Once, directly in the presence of Jesus Christ to say what he did was attributed to the devil and it wasn't Holy Spirit. And that was the context when the first unpardonable sin is brought up. The second time, actual, the biggest unpardonable sin is going through your whole life and rejecting Christ. Now, no one goes to hell because they don't hear about Jesus. Everyone goes to hell because they're sinners. The wage of the sin is death. And, and if you don't ever have anything taking care of your sin, you will pay for it forever. If you reject Jesus, that is, you're rejecting the only hope you have. And so there's a big question about whether everybody's heard about Jesus. I already know what the Bible says. It says in John, he is the light that lighteth every uh, one that cometh into the world. What that means is, and what it says in, in John or Psalm 19 is, that the, the message of Jesus Christ, it says in Hebrews 19, or I mean in Psalm 19, that, that the word of the Lord goes throughout the whole world in every speech or language hears his voice. What does that mean? We're all born with two candles, the candle of creation, the candle of conscience. If we look out at the world, we say, hey, this didn't get here. It's kind of like seeing an iPhone on the ground. It didn't evolve. Somebody made that. That's how the world looks. So you know there's a creator. So you're born kind of realizing that. You also have a conscience. You know what you're doing is wrong. Those are the two lights, Romans 1 says, everybody's born with. Most people take the evolutionary way, blow out the candle that will take them to the creator. And then they blow their conscience by such persistent sin that it muffles and deadens and finally sears the voice of God. All people go to hell because they're sinners. No one goes to hell because they didn't hear about Jesus. Jesus is just the only hope, and he is the one that is knocking on every heart's door. And I could talk to you about that on one of the breaks, uh, but that's not my topic, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. But what happens to Christians? Now let's get back to Revelation. It's talking to Christians who persist in unrepentant sin. I showed you in 1 Corinthians 11, for this reason many are weak, verse 30, many are sick and many sleep. Within the Corinthian church, which was only 100 people, how do we know that? Paul spent a year and a half of his life pastoring a church that is smaller than churches that most pastors in America, if they have a church of 100 or less, they think they have a little church, you know, and they go around like this. I go to pastor's conferences all the time, and the pastors are always saying, yeah, I'm running 2,700, I'm running 4,000, I'm, you know, I'm running whatever. You never hear someone saying, I'm running 89. I mean, because that's embarrassing. Paul pastored a church of under 100. How do we know that? Because they've excavated the homes of Corinth, and no home could hold more than 100 people. And Paul said the church met in the home of this Corinthian saint. So we knew it was 100 or less people. And so what does he say? They were struggling with sin. At communion, he said, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some, some of you, many of you actually sleep. Why does this matter? And we're going to talk, I'll get to Hebrews 12 and talk about chastisement, but we're going to be wearing our good works in heaven. Uh, it says, and let's go back to um, Revelation chapter 2. Oh, turning pages is fun. I love it. I have a few things against you. This woman Jezebel, who causes my servants to commit sexual immorality. I gave her time to repent, verse 21, of her sexual immorality. And she did not repent, verse 22. Indeed, 
This is talking to a local church. This is talking to a person teaching in a local church. Verse 22. I will cast her into a sickbed. What is that? That's 1 Corinthians 11. I just read you. Many are weak, many are sick, many sleep. Are dead because they wouldn't repent as a Christian of their persistent sin. I will cast her into sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And verse 23, I will kill her children. That's the, the people that are following her ways, her, her you know, converts to her way of, of sin. These are within the church, those who are following her way of sin. I will kill them with death. Why? So all the churches, verse 23, will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give every one of you according to your works. Wow. Revelation 19, when we get to it in a few, it'll be next week, is vital for us to see that in the future we're going to wear our good works. actually says that in 19. I'm not going to talk about it because it's there. Now we understand why John chose to stay in the spirit, Revelation 1 even while he was exiled. Why did Paul box his flesh? Because it does matter, and it will matter forever. What we choose to deny and resist every day. And we'll hit that in chapter 19. Number seven, you can go on sinning too long. I read it already in verse 21. I gave her time to repent. God said it's time to repent or else. There's a limit to his patience. And when we press him too far, it happens. And Jesus follows the same three-step recovery program Paul outlined. What I already read to you in 1 Corinthians 11 is what Jesus says here in Revelation 2. What are the three steps? Some are weak, some are sick, some are dead. Why? Why? Each step restores either back to repentance or close to being recalled. I, as a pastor, you run into this all the time. We had a woman, an amazing woman in our church, one of the churches I pastored. She actually was a uh, a writer for Billy Graham, uh, his Decision Magazine. She wrote articles all the time. She was just one of these godly Bible-teaching women, and all of a sudden she got sick. And they were very wealthy, and uh, so the husband took her to Mayo, and he took her to MD Anderson, and he took her to whatever, uh, you know, Cleveland General, all these hospitals. They ran all the tests, and she started wasting away, and she got down to like, I don't know what you can get down to, 70 pounds, 80 pounds. I mean, she was just she was dying. Her whole system, she just looked 20, 30 years older, and she just could hardly move and was pushing around in a wheelchair. And finally, the husband came to us, the elders, and said, I've exhausted all the medical things. I would like you to anoint her with oil, James 5, and pray over her. I said, we'd love to. We do that all the time. And so he wheeled her in, and she's there, you know, shaking and everything, and in her wheelchair, and I got the olive oil out, and I said, before I do this, the Bible says in James 5 that we're supposed to make sure that there's no unconfessed, unforsaken sin in your life because the Lord will not heal you until you confess and forsake that sin. And she looked up, and those sad eyes looked right at me. And I was holding my olive oil bottle, you know, and my little paper towel because you wipe it off after you do it because it gets olive oil gets all over you. And she said, what do you mean? I said, is there any sin you're aware of right now that the Lord's been convicting you about that you're resisting him? And she said, yes. And her husband started crying. Now here's this Bible teacher, and I mean, they were so generous, and wealthy, and successful, and 
loved, he started crying. And she said, yes. She said, my husband did something, and I said, I'll never forgive you for it. And she said, I've gotten so bitter, and we hardly talk. And she said, he still pushes me around in my wheelchair. I said, well, click. I snapped my oil top, said, can't give you any olive oil now. I'm not going to pray over you until you come back. And she said, well, I'd rather just repent right here and give me the olive oil. And she just said, Lord, I'm sorry I was wrong and bitter, and it's sin, and it's not worth it. So we opened the olive oil, put a little olive oil cross on her forehead. It's the most remarkable, going from 70 to 80 to 90 to 100. I don't know how much she ended up weighing, 110 maybe. She came back to the most radiant, pink-cheeked. She was back to herself. I could tell you story after story after story. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you'll reap. There's a consequence engine that operates from God against Christians who won't repent. Chastening is how God trains us for righteousness. You say, how do you know that? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm glad you asked me. How do you know that? And you know, whenever someone asks you, how do you know that? Show them. That's what you're here for. You're supposed to be learning where to go. I'm showing you where to go for all these topics that are the most important topics of your Christian life. For the rest of your life, till you get to heaven, it's going to matter how well you know this truth. Because when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And the truth allows you to abound and overflow with the truth of God and the life he wants us to live. Well, starting in verse... Um, let's see, 5 of Hebrews 12. You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. My son, this is talking about Christians. The Lord is chastening Christians, rebuking Christians. Verse 6, for, when the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Doesn't, I mean, that is not the, um, you know, your best life now, positive thinking, Joel Olstein. I don't think you'll hear him ever speak on this. You don't even know who he is. He's got that gigantic church down in, I think it's in Houston, that only stresses the positive. This, this is what is destroying people's lives and marriages and families. It's because they can't understand why their life is like the wheels have fallen off. And everything is going bad and they can't get along with their parents or their wife or their husband or their boss and their whole life's falling apart and they're a Christian and they think, maybe if I memorize another verse or something. No. Look what it says. If you endure chastening, verse 7, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not chasten? Have you noticed how many times the word chasten? Actually, if you could see my Bible, I have a little circle around all the chastening. I've daisy-chained them so you can see it. That's one of the ways I study the Bible. If God repeats himself, after about the second repetition, I go, what are you doing saying that so many times? And I start thinking about it more. Uh, For what son is there, verse 7, whom the father does not chasten? Verse 8, but if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. I remember when I used to have my old King James Bible, the old one, this is a new King James, there was a swear word in the Bible. Did you know that? The old King James has a swear word in it. You know what it says in verse 8? In the old King James, it says, you are bastards. 
I, I used to remember seeing the old men sitting around chewing tobacco and spitting it out, talking about that bastard, you know, that, that, that was a, a disparaging term. You know what it, this is a very serious passage. God says, if you are without chastening, verse 8, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not a son. Oh. If you call yourself a Christian and can live persistently in either secret or even unsecret public sins and nothing happens, God says you're illegitimate. What does that mean? That means he's not your father. That's what an illegitimate child is one that, that nobody knows who the father is. That's what they used to call them. You know, they're born out of wedlock and they're illegitimate. It was, you know, a cultural thing, you know, that everybody frowned. What, what is this saying? That there are actually people, it says in Matthew chapter 7, who are going to get to heaven and they're standing in line. He says, Lord, we did all these wonderful things. We were in your church and we served. And he says, yeah, you did that, but I never knew you. Depart from me. Why? You worker of iniquity. You were never chastened. You were never stopped dead in your tracks. You were never spanked by me, the God of the universe. I spank all my children. If you're a Christian, you're cruising along, and you've got all this secret stuff going on, and it's clearly sin from the Bible, and nothing happens to your life, you are cruising the wrong direction, and you're going to end up horrified with the worst thing you could ever hear in your life. I never knew you. That's what Jesus said. So keep going. Uh, verse 9, furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more be readily in subjection to the Father's spirits and live? For if indeed for a few days chastening, as it seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Verse 11, chastening seems to be joyful. No chastening seems joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit. Wow. What is chastening, by the way? Chastening is something we feel as emotional anxiety or distress. What used to bring us joy doesn't. Pressures increase at work, at home, in our health, in our finances. Many Christians bump along at this chastening level of discipline, yet fail to read the signs. They feel unfulfilled at church. They feel critical of their Christian friends. They feel on the outs with God. When they pick up their Bible, it's like lead. Sometimes they just don't even want to pick it up. Their relationships with the Lord seems blighted. Chastening is when God removes from us the joy of our salvation. And if any of these symptoms sound familiar, you don't need to go church a little more. You don't need to read the Bible a little bit more with a better attitude. You need to look for any ongoing sin in your life and repent. Because if we don't, it gets worse. So how do we avoid emptiness and restlessness and boredom? Look what Jesus says in uh, Revelation 2, I shouldn't shut it, 2.23. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches will know this is, this is the ultimate chastening, kill her children with death. And all the churches will know I am he who searches the heart and the minds, and I will give each one of you according to your works. So how do you get out of it? Back up two verses to 21. I gave her time to repent. The universal call to holy living or facing the consequence 
is what Galatians 6, 7, and 8 talks about. Remember I quoted that to you? Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. He that sows the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. He that sows the spirit will reap life everlasting. Persistent sin in Christians offers growing boredom, a feeling of emptiness, feeling useless, feeling restless, being frustrated, and living in fear. And all those are the symptoms of walking in the flesh. That's a pretty interesting list. Because I started out as a youth pastor. And I still speak to hundreds and hundreds of people your age. And I see so many that are bored, empty, feeling useless, their life is restless, they're just always restless, they're frustrated about everything, and they're very fearful. And those are all symptoms, God says, of sowing to the flesh. And there are many ways to sow the flesh. You don't have to be around the dancing troops of, you know, of Thyatira and the slaves to do it. So all of you are saying, ah, but what about the grace of God? I, I knew you were going to ask that. So where would you go to find out about the grace of God? Well, one of the best places I go is Titus chapter 2. So let me show you Titus chapter 2. Because what does the grace of God? What, what is the grace of God? What is the purpose? What does it do? How does it impact us as believers? Well, Titus 2.11. For the grace of God. See, that's the topic we're on. Titus 2.11. Which brings salvation. So grace is totally ta attached to salvation. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So what this is saying, it's, it's, it's going beyond just the simple grace, and it's calling Christ is the grace of God that brings salvation, if you think about it. And he has appeared to all men. So it's not just the topic of grace, we're talking about the source of grace. <laughs> and most people stop there. What does verse 12 say? See, let's talk about the grace of God. Let's see if we have really partaken of the grace of God. What is the grace of God? Verse 12. Teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You know what Paul told Titus to share in Crete? If you've partaken of the grace of God, the grace of God teaches you to say no to sin. And if you're not saying no to sin, you better make sure you've really partaken of the grace of God because those two are connected. But they're not in a lot of people's lives. And it's frightening. Well, well let's go on. Revelation 2.24. Back to Revelation 2, verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan. Wow. Jesus said that believers in Thyatira who were sleeping around and living this, you know, God will forgive me, I'll make it to heaven, I'm a Christian life, and living like they want to, grieving and quenching him, have known the depths of Satan. You know what I wrote? Verse 10. I mean, uh, not verse 10, my 10th observation. Satan kills and steals and destroys. Do you remember that? 
Remember what Jesus said in John 10? Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and not just life, life that's more abundant. But Satan came to kill and steal and destroy. Who do you want running your life? The one that makes it inexpressibly delightful, joy, confidence, peace, hope, stability. You know, like it says in Proverbs, the righteous are as bold as a lion, but the wicked run when no one's pursuing him. You want that bold, full of God life? Or do you want to be constantly empty and listless and feeling useless and feeling hopeless and, and just living in emptiness looking for a thrill? It's really that simple. Satan's way, which is attached to sin in the flesh, or Christ's way. So look at the amazing offer of God, starting in verse 25 of Revelation 2. Hold fast what you have till I come. He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him I'll give power over the nations. He'll rule them, verse 27, with the rod of iron. They'll be dashed to pieces. Now he starts quoting, remember this? Revelation quotes over 800 times and alludes to and uses parts of the rest of the Bible as I've also received from my Father, verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What's Jesus saying? Nothing different than he said while he was on earth. In fact, since you all know that, let's go back to see what he said. Look at Matthew 7. Jesus really ruffled feathers because he talked to the most religious people in the world, and this is what he said. Matthew 7, this is the Sermon on the Mount, his longest, biggest public sermon. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. That's sobering. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So Jesus defines salvation as something not that we do, but that he does. He changes our heart. I was born wanting my own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. Remember Isaiah 53. I was born that way. When I'm born again, I don't want to do my will. I want to do his. That's a miracle. See, that's salvation. That I'm no longer the way I was born. I've been born again. What does being born again mean? I do the will of my Father in heaven. And Jesus goes on, many will say to me in that day, verse 22 of chapter 7, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done wonders in your name? And guess what the God of the universe, the judge of all, Jesus Christ, said to them? He doesn't say, no, you didn't. He says, hmm, hmm, you did do all that. Yeah, you did all those things. You were quite active. Verse 23. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Why? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. If you've never been saved from sin, you've never been saved from hell. Wow. That's a very interesting... No, not perfect. doesn't say that. It says that you want to do the will of your Father. You know what Paul said? He wrote a whole... Did you know Paul's testimony of the Christian life is Romans 7? Have you ever read Romans 7? I'm sure you've already had that class somewhere along the way. Romans 7 is the most personal chapter in the Bible. The, the, Paul says, I, me, and my, so much. It's kind of uncharacteristic. He's constantly talking about himself. 
And what does he say? What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I am doing. Oh, wretched man. What he's saying is, I'm still battling. I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. He went to heaven and saw Jesus and came back and wrote about it. You know what I mean? The Wow, Paul. He said, Christ turned my canoe around, and it's really hard to resist the world. And sometimes I float, but I get right back and I beat my flesh under. That's a Christian. The person that's just floating along here and says I'm a Christian is probably not. That I mean, I didn't say I'm glad. I would never say anything like that. I'm glad Jesus said it. Well, real quickly, look at 1 Peter 2.11 with me. Remember, they got this verse, and I love this verse. And Bonnie and I, one of the privileges we have... Um, we, we speak about a fourth of our time to Word of Life Bible Institutes. Um, and the rest of the time, what we do is we spend a lot of time with the frontline missionaries. In fact, for four years, we've had the privilege of addressing the medical missionaries that work in closed countries. There are 65 countries around the world that don't let Christians in. So Christians become medical missionaries. So they go in as doctors and nurses and physicians' assistants and all that kind of stuff into these closed countries. Did you know that even North Korea allows in, uh, you know, aid workers? Even, I mean, you name any Muslim country, they all allow medical help, aid, people to come in. And so there are 65 closed countries and there are wonderful Christians, uh, gospel-centric believers going there. And they bring them out of those countries to a neutral country once a year, hundreds of them. And Bonnie and I have had the privilege, what they call us as spiritual mental health care providers. Spiritual mental health care providers. And Bonnie meets with the women and councils and everything, and I meet with the men, and then I get to challenge them twice a day. And there'll be an auditorium of six and seven and eight hundred doctors and nurses from 65 closed countries in a neutral country and they come. This is one of them, gave their testimony. They're in Myanmar, northern Myanmar. Uh, listen to what they said. In fact, almost everybody in the audience was weeping when they got done. These are missionaries, medical missionaries, in one of the darkest spots on earth. They said 90% of all men in our country, over 18, are addicted to opium. They're, they're heroin addicts, 90%. The woman doctor was sharing. She said, do you know what it's like to walk from where we live to the market in front of 90% of the men are looking at you and they're addicts and they can't wait for their next hit, their next fix, and they just, they just live for whatever their desires want. She said, that's the country we live in. That's been in, she said, civil war, the longest civil war on earth. They've been over 40 years fighting. And she said, what they're doing in their clinic is constantly patching up the soldiers from both sides that are fighting and killing each other. And she just broke down in tears. And she said, why? Are, why? Why are we here? And she started reading 1 Peter 
chapter 2, verse 11. She said, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. She said, my husband and I decided we could live in America and earn in the six high six figures as medical personnel. I mean, she was trained, I forget, Bonnie would know, either at Mayo or St. or Johns Hopkins, you know, one of the big places, and had her own practice and had white carpet and had the matching cars and the security system and the gated community and the kids in the high dollar school, you know, the whole life of America's success. And she said, we thought, wait a minute, we're sojourners and pilgrims. And look what we were called to do, verse 9. You're a chosen generation, you're a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're his own special people. You are supposed to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And she said, we started praying. We said, Lord, what's the darkest spot on earth? We want to resign our practice and go there as medical missionaries. And she said, look where we are. And she just wept. She said, it's the hardest place I'm aware of on earth to serve Christ. She said, everybody around you is either addicted to opium or they're killing each other. On top of that, they have more demonic temples, Buddhist shrines with demons in them than any other, per square mile, than any other spot on earth. She said, it's the most demonized, the most murderous, the most addicted place of darkness in the world. And she said, as pilgrims and strangers, that's where we're called. Did you know some people get to heaven empty-handed? It's because they're Christians, but they float. And the Lord keeps tipping over their canoe, and other people keep telling them you're going the wrong way, and they get saved yet so as by fire. I hope none of you want to be like that. Did you know Jesus is vitally concerned about your health? And did you know that this portion that we're looking at is one of the most amazing descriptions of what it takes to be a healthy believer? And so, let's go back to Revelation, and this is a group of people that were living in the epicenter of temptation, the epicenter of worldliness, the epicenter of persecution. And the best way to survive that, and let's get to there, is go to what Revelation 3.1 says. So turn in your Bible to Revelation 3.1, and we're looking, let me get there with you, we're looking at the church of Sardis. Now let me read to you. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, so Jesus is talking. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works. I know you have a name that you're alive. What does the end of verse one say? But you are what? This is the worst church. All the other churches have raging infections, heart problems, a little problem with fear, a little problem with tolerating false teaching. Jesus, like a physician, kneels down next to the body of Christ in Sardis, takes their pulse, and he says, you're dead. You're in cardiac arrest. So what we're going to see is what happens when he has to take out those defibrillators, you know? You ever seen them? You know, they, they charge them up, and their whole body goes, you know, like that. And they keep until the beep, 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 their heart starts coming back. See, Jesus is vitally concerned that we not get into cardiac arrest, that we not have our veins, you know, full like the Ephesians did and had a hardening of their arteries. 
So, what does he say? Verse 1, I know your works, I know you have a name, you're alive. Jesus knows all that is going on everywhere, including the condition of his messengers to each of the local gatherings. He knows what we're feeding our souls on. So don't, don't worry. The Lord is tracking with you. He knows what you've learned here at home, in your church. But secondly, Jesus is the only one that gives us an honest spiritual life assessment. Jesus knows if our walk matches up to our talk. See, the Sardis people had works, and they had a name, and they were known as a church that was alive. See, that's the problem. Christians can go through all the motions. We learn the language, we can pray, we learn verses, we can lead, we can share the gospel. How many people in church history do we know about, like Billy Graham's original partner, that ended up being a Christ-denying infidel? Yet he was one of the greatest zealous soul winners back in the 40s, the 1940s, when he worked with Billy Graham. What he said is, he said, yeah, he says, I, I can do that. It's like, you can learn to do anything. But when Jesus looked at him, he saw his true spiritual condition. So Jesus gives him a diagnosis in verse 2. This is what he says, why they're dead. You need to be watchful, which means they weren't. You need to strengthen what remains, which means they were very weak, that are ready to die. I have not found your works perfect. Perfect? What that word means is mature, that, that they have gone through the process of maturity. They were stunted. You know what they call a child that's born, that, that doesn't, you know, they, they weigh them and measure them. When, when you were little, your parents took you and they were always putting you on the percentile. Your parents knew your percentile. They knew where you were on the weight and height for, for what you were supposed to be at how many months old. And if you didn't, there's a classification for that. It's called failure to thrive. So Jesus reaches down, does the medical inspection. He says, you have a failure to thrive. What was the problem? A lack of vigilance. They weren't watchful. They were spiritually weak. They needed strengthening. They lost their discernment. They were ready to die and they didn't even know it. They were operating in the church and everything was, their health was just falling apart. They had a lack of maturity. They weren't perfect in their works. By the way, how did they get so bad? I'm glad you asked that. Peter wrote a warning to these people. It's in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. So back up to 1 Peter 5. I hope that this is one of those verses that you have underlined in your Bible, because it's really an important one. 1 Peter 5.8, Peter said, to the very people, Paul, I mean, that Jesus is writing to in Sardis, because remember, Peter wrote, look at 1 Peter 1, let me show you the map. 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersions scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Sardis was in Asia, the Roman province of Asia. So Peter wrote this letter, and it was circulated through these churches. Now look what he says in chapter 5 of 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may, what? Devour. When Jesus came to the church in Sardis, the body of Christ was laying on the ground after an attack by a lion the devil. That's what a devoured Christian looks like. 
Remember I told you two times ago that the seven churches represent not only seven local geographic entities, they also represent seven types of believers that are always going to be present in Christ's church. Do you know what Sardis, Sardian type believers are? They've been devoured by their adversary, the devil. How do you know? They're not vigilant. We're supposed to always, look what it says. Resist him, verse 9. Steadfast in the faith, knowing the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood all over the world. And if you resist him, what happens? Verse 10. The God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory, after you suffered a little while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's the healthy life. Laying, kneading the paddles to get resuscitated is the unhealthy life. Yet I would say, from my anecdotal, from my observation, after pastoring churches in the West, in the South, in the Northeast, in the center of the U.S., that there are so many devoured Christians in churches, in ministries. It's horrible. What does the Lord offer? I call it spiritual chemo. Look at Revelation 3.3. 3. You know, if someone has cancer, get them on chemo, right? Uh, Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you'll not know what hour I'll come upon you. The Lord says, I'm not going to let you persist in this behavior. You need spiritual chemo. Spiritual lethargy and dullness is only treated, are reminders of the work of the, only treated by reminders of the work of the gospel. That's when he says, how you've received and heard. I like to put it this way. When someone, and people all the time as a pastor would come to my office, and now I talk to people all the time, and they all say, I don't know what's wrong, I don't feel saved, and I feel so far from the Lord. I said, well, let's just go over the gospel. Let me remind you what the gospel is. That's what he said, how you received and heard. You need a reminder that when you were saved, the Spirit opened your mind. He implanted the Word. Then God gave you new life, and he gave you the strength to grow. And then you have to grasp truth and hold on to it to grow. It's kind of like uh, plants that, that you're, you're planting, you know, you put them in and you've got to water them and the, the water recedes in the pot and their roots are going down and if they can't get down to the water, they wither on the top. And so God says you've got to keep close enough to what you need, the truth, You have to grasp it. Your roots have to be in it. You have to guard your supply. You have to hold on for it for life. Otherwise, Jesus will come like a thief. Now look what he offers in verse 4. I called it intimacy. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Wow. You have a few people who are not laying by the road, attacked by the lion, the devil. What's the difference? Well, Sardians had defiled their garments. Remember what Jude, verse 23, Jude only has one chapter. It says, of some have compassion, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh, pull them out of the fire. There were Christians who were so involved in sin that they needed other Christians to come and pull them out and say, stop that. They're defiled, and they didn't want them to be. They need to be pulled out. 
And that's how these devoured ones were. They were defiled. But there were some who were resisting Satan's toxins. And Jesus offers to all who will pay the price to resist sin and walk with him the indescribable joy of fellowshipping with the God of the universe. That's how that lady that gave her testimony that all of us wept from uh, Myanmar, that's how she made it. She went on to say that the only thing that keeps them going in that darkest spot on earth is that they're walking with Christ. What it says here, verse 5 of chapter 3, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Wow! You talk about the best life possible. The best life possible is to be introduced by Jesus Christ to God the Father. And that's what we look forward to. Who will be introduced by Jesus Christ to God the Father? The ones that are walking with him through life. And he said, that's what I'm offering you. And that's what you should want. So the question is, Jesus is offering the best life possible now, which is going through life clothed in Christ and feeling eternally secure and awaiting for the grand welcome in heaven. How do we know if we have that? Hmm? Look look what it says in verse 6. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear the teaching of the Word of God, the preaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, your personal study of the Word of God, and if you hear it, and in your heart you say, that's what I want, it's hard, I'm like Paul, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I am doing, but I want it, I want to, I want to live based on I'm crucified with Christ. The Lord says, you have ears. And what you need to do is make a conscious choice for right now. You know, most people make decisions say, for the rest of my life I'm going to do this. Don't worry about the rest of your life. You'll never be doing later on what you're not doing right now. So just do it right now. Live constantly right now in obedience to the Lord. We're password protected. We hear his voice. Okay, we have eight minutes. Now let's jump into church number six. Look at verse seven. Because, well, I'll read to you. Um, how I introduced the Philadelphia church. Here we go. There aren't many truths that can change your life forever. Some truths change us momentarily. Others affect us for a while. But in Jesus' simple introduction to the church in Philadelphia, there are four truths of a forever changed life. Now, why do I say that? Well, look at this. When Jesus introduces himself, this is the introduction to this book. So that you all see it, I put it up there for you. Jesus doesn't come and say, hi, it's Jesus, stop him by. Uh-uh. Look what he says. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, these things. Now remember I told you there's a city and then there's Jesus' introduction of himself. Jesus introduces himself most unusually to this church. All the other churches get an introduction that's somehow something he's already said in chapter 1. Eyes of fire, feet of brass, whatever, you know. Not them. Jesus reaches back to one of the most obscure chapters in the Bible. Isaiah 22, 22, if you want to know where it is. And introduces himself and reveals something that's unbelievable. This is what he says. These things says him who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. What is that? Isaiah 22, 22. Amazing what that means. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works, and I've set before you an open door, 
and no one can shut it. That's probably one of the most powerful collections of truths condensed anywhere in the Bible. For just a minute, let's look at it. I call it the four keys to spiritual health, to live in a hostile world. Jesus first says, I'm holy. It's the only attribute of God that gets the ultimate emphasis. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, As he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. What does holy mean? I learned about holiness when I was a little boy. My mother used to say she used to like to bake and decorate cakes, you know? I mean, she baked them, stacked the layers, put frosting between them, put frosting on it. It was beautiful. Put them on a pedestal, and I was a bad little boy, and she had to get down and lean over and say to me, don't touch that cake. That is for, you know, your father's birthday or your sister's birthday or for dinner tonight. Don't touch that cake. And I'd say, but can I lick some frost? No. And what she was saying is, it was set aside for something special. That's all that holiness means. Set aside. Hallowed, consecrated. Uh, it, was, it was limited because it was special. God says, I am holy. And you should limit yourself so that you can respond to what I want. Because you grieve me and quench me when you're not. So it's the only attribute, by the way, of God that gets the ultimate emphasis. Jesus never says, I am love, love, love. I am grace, grace, grace. What does he say? I am holy, 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 right? Isaiah 6. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm true. Uh, Jesus speaks the truth. He says, I'm the last word. I'm the, the source of truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he says, I want truthfulness. I want you actually living in a way that reflects my truth. And then we get to this obscure verse. The key of David is in Isaiah 22:22. There's a man named Shebna who introduces himself as a steward to the king of Judah. Everyone would have known what the key of David was. The steward had the key of David for the king, the descendants of David, the kings of Judah. First, the steward served the king by dispensing his wealth. Always in the Old Testament, the king had a steward. The king didn't care around pay for stuff. He had a steward that did it, so he dispensed his wealth. Secondly, the steward was the only person that scheduled you to come in before the king. The steward opened the door to the king. Finally, the steward displayed the king's power. Remember how Joseph had Pharaoh's signet and could, could display Pharaoh's power that he authorized this? So the steward did three things. The steward is the one that dispensed the wealth, entered the presence of the king, and authorized things in the name of the king. Jesus said, I'm the only one that can open God's unlimited wealth to you, God's unlimited presence in your life, and God's power authorizing what you do for me. And what does all that mean? It's the final truth. He says, I open a door of ministry no one can shut. You know, a lot of you are thinking about being in ministry. The only way that you can be sure that you can go into a ministry that God is going to bless is if you say, like the Philadelphians, you're holy, and I want to be as holy as it's possible for a born-again, former slave of sin, now redeemed in your temple to be. I want to be. I want to follow after your holiness. True, I want to know your truth. I want to live your truth. I, 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 I believe you are the one that can open the door to God's power and presence and 
authorization and wealth. And I want you to lead me to ministry because when you do, no one can shut the door. See, that's what happened to that lady that was weeping from Myanmar. They, no one should be in that dark country preaching the gospel. It's Satan's stronghold. But Christ opened the door. And she said, we're here, and God's protecting us, and we're going forward. What that means is that Jesus opens doors to ministry. He opens doors for us to do what he desires. He places the doors before us. He awaits our response. He can keep the door of ministry from being closed, a ministry that can't be stopped, but it's just for a time. It's not like permanently whatever we do is going to last forever. It's for the, as Paul put it, I want to finish the race that God has laid down for me. So what is the healthy life Jesus offers? It's an abundant life, a confident life, a joyful life, a guilt-free life, a peaceful life, a hope-filled life, overflowing life, purpose-filled life. It's faithfulness. God doesn't want us perfect, sinless. He just wants us faithful. And he'll make us joyful, overflowing, and everything else he promised.